The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Rod Temperton has died. Who? I know. Temperton was known as the Invisible Man. He wrote dozens of songs you've probably heard of, including... That one. Temperton was a white working class lad from England with sexy musical dreams. It seems as if he took the circumstances he was born into and consciously put his life on the exact opposite path those circumstances would suggest. For instance, after graduating high school, he worked in a frozen fish factory in Grimsby, England. As if that collection of nouns weren't dreary enough, he answered a newspaper advert to become a session musician in the German city of Worms, W-O-R-M-S. Perhaps you know it from Martin Luther's Diet of Worms. From that ad, he formed a group that belied the itchy sweater that must have been his life. That group was called Sundown Carousel, and it toured Germany playing soul songs, He parlayed the, what must have been, robust German soul scene into another group that he found via an advert, and he formed a new band in America, Heatwave. Let me take you back to Heatwave's best-known hit. Luckily, the travel back in the past sound effect is actually how this song starts. It's Boogie Nights. Went to number two on the pop charts from Heat Wave's debut LP, Too Hot to Handle, which at the Frozen Fish Place was more than a theoretical concern. Sensing that the Heat Wave was about to break, he went solo as a songwriter and wrote for Shaka Khan, Donna Summer, George Benson, and Michael Jackson. First was this ditty. and later Thriller, including, yes, the Vincent Price rap, kind of rapish part, which Temperton wrote in a cab on the way to the studio. The title itself, though, was no dashed-off effort. He told a BBC documentary about coming up with the name for the best-selling album in music history. Something in my head just said, this is the title. You could visualize it. (laughs) <laughs> on the top of the billboard charts, you know, you could see the merchandising for this one word, how it jumped off the page. So I knew I had to write it as Thriller, and I wrote all the words very quickly, then went to the studio, and we did it. Temperton died at the age of 66 last week, though news of his death has just become public. And while his corporeal form is not expected to rise from the grave and engage in rhythmic dancing with fellow members of the undead, his musical legacy will live on. On the show today, I spiel about the ceasefire, or lack thereof, in Syria. But first, I don't know if you've been noticing this about politics and politicians. Not always so truthful. Let's check the facts about fact-checking. 
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. So if I told you 20 years ago, actually, let's place it about 25 years ago so we could be pre-internet. If I told you, you were an observer of politics, that one day in the not-too-distant future, we will have a mechanism by which every candidate's words and assertion will be checked, thoroughly vetted by professionals. And this fact-checking will be widely disseminated so that anyone who cares can avail themselves of it and know which candidates are telling the truth and which aren't. You might have said, 25 five years ago. Well, this is going to change everything. Guess what? That future is here. And it turns out not to have changed everything. I wonder if he even changed much at all. There's just about no one I'd rather speak to about this than Brendan Nyhan. He is a professor at the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. I've been uh, interested in his work since the early aughts when he was running the Spinsanity blog. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for the Spinsanity shout out. Absolutely. That's a deep cut. So 25 years ago, that was uh, when you were a little kid, when I was uh, younger than you, maybe when I was a young man. And I do think we would have thought that. I do think we would have thought that the pursuit of truthfulness would have changed politics more than it did. Don't don't you think so? Yeah, there's been a utopian dream out there. If we get more information out to people, it will make them better informed, right? And I'd love to believe that too. And, and, you know, when... I was working on Spinsanity. That was certainly the hope. But it's turned out to be much tougher than that. I don't think it means fact-checking is a failure by any stretch, but there are no easy answers here. There's no panacea that is going to make people well-informed about politics, despite everything that we might have hoped. Do you think the biggest failure is on the part of how the fact-checking industry uh, conducts its business or just on the part of how human beings process uh, thought, let's say? Well, I'm hesitant to blame us for being human beings because, of course, we are, and that's not going to change. Uh, But I do think that the fact checkers are confronting the limitations of how human psychology works, and especially how human psychology works when it comes to subjects like politics that implicate aspects of our identity that we feel very strongly about. You know, we have very weak incentives to have accurate beliefs about politics, and we have very strong incentives to believe things that are pleasing to us. It's disconcerting to think that our side is wrong, that our point of view is incorrect. And we can be very resistant to that. The fact checkers do their best. I wouldn't blame them for failing to make us all magically informed. I think that's an impossible expectation and an unfair one. That's true. I'll give you some of my pet peeves, though. I think that they're a little too literal. For instance, today I'm speaking to you right after the vice presidential debate, and there was a ruling. uh, Tim Kaine asserted that Mike Pence was the biggest cheerleader for privatizing Social Security. And that was rated as something like half true or not all the way true, because even though Mike Pence went beyond what George W. Bush wanted to do in terms of taking Social Security and putting it in private accounts, they said, well, the word privatize is misleading. It indicates that there would be a private takeover of Social Security. And I just said to myself, are you bending over backwards? That seems to be a very fair statement to say that he's a cheerleader for what we all know the phrase privatizing Social Security means. 
there can be a kind of hyperliteralism in fact-checking. Yes. Um, and, and that often ends up leading us into semantic disputes that aren't very informative, right? What does it mean to privatize Social Security? Or to take an older example, what does it mean to say uh, Republicans are going to end Medicare, as Democrats uh, used to say? And, and I think rightly the fact-checkers objected. That suggested that they were proposing to get rid of any health care coverage for seniors. Um, but then it turned into a semantic dispute about what is Medicare? If it changes into uh, a private health insurance-based system, is that the same thing as the Medicare we have now? And we we spiraled down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. So I, I prefer to stick to cases where the the facts are as unambiguous as possible and it, it the, the dispute doesn't rely on the fact checker exercising a subjective judgment. Now, there's always going to be some subjectivity, but we have to be cautious about when it's appropriate to weigh in as a fact checker and when not to. Does the Donald Trump example, so all politicians lie to some extent. He says things that aren't true uh, to a much greater extent of his statements that were checked by, say, PolitiFact um, of the, I think, last six presidential candidates, including the two times that Barack Obama ran. He's the only one that's more than 50% false or pants on fire. So is he challenging fact checking in a new way? Absolutely. We've never seen a, a presidential candidate like him who says so many inaccurate things and uh, refuses to change what he's saying when he's called out for, for making a false claim. I'm obligated by my PhD to, to say that the percentage uh, of ratings from PolitiFact aren't a great indicator because we, you know they may choose statements differently between candidates. But there's even better evidence in the case of Trump. So back in March, Politico analyzed every single thing Trump said for a week. So there was no process of picking and choosing which statements to assess. They checked all of them, and they found he averaged a false statement every five minutes. This was re- recently repeated by a number of media organizations who had very similar findings. It's absolutely unprecedented. And it's very difficult for fact checkers. He's flooding the zone. He's overwhelming the resources of media organizations. But couldn't you make the case that it's not helping him? I mean, he is, as we speak, trailing in the polls and perhaps a year that just a a garden variety Republican should be winning. Maybe his lying is not a good strategy, even though he keeps doing it. It's hard to say. You know, it's hard to separate out all the aspects of of Trumpism, right? He's underperforming the best guess of the political science forecasting models in terms of how a Republican should do in this election. He's somewhat below that. Is the reason that uh, is the reason for his underperformance that the false statements, or is it all the outrageous things he says that aren't false but offend people? I don't really know, and I, I don't know how to separate those. If other politicians start adopting this tactic and start being more indifferent to uh, criticism of the accuracy of their claims, that's a terrible precedent, one that could live on uh, long after he leaves the political scene. Right. Although maybe you could argue that a regular politician doesn't have the ability to get media attention no matter what he does once that regular politician is uh, beat down by the fact check organizations. You know, maybe only a Trump type character can bluff past it and continue to create his own oxygen and continue to get the camera on him after it's been shown that he's lied so many times. That's the optimistic case. Um, That's optimistic. (laughs) 
we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I, so, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, we're taping the day after the vice presidential debate. And I was struck by Mike Pence's strategy, which was to bluff past all of the statements that that he and especially Trump had made on the record and just simply to deny them. Um, he's certainly known for being very conservative. He wasn't known, to my knowledge, for being that brazen in disregarding the actual empirical record before. So to the extent that that's a sign of, of creeping Trumpism in the national debate, it's worrisome. Uh, it's worrisome. Politicians are strategic. They try to get elected. They want to win. And when they see what people can get away with, they may adopt it. Even if Trump is a special case, it may move people on the margin a little further towards this kind of behavior that we want to avoid. Do you think that the method of rating statements, uh, mostly true, somewhat true, or assigning a number of Pinocchios, in other words, the continuum and the rating is the best way to do this? Or are there better ways, either just a, a thumbs up, thumbs down, or maybe not having any rating at all and just describing uh, in prose the truthfulness of a statement like the Spin Sanity blog used to do? You're going to take me deep into the fact-checking weeds here. Uh, so at Spin Sandy, we did not have a rating system. It is the great innovation of PolitiFact and the Washington Post Fact Checker. I think it's indisputable that readers like it. They find it helpful. It's useful to them in, in getting the gist of the, the rating because the, the factual disputes are often quite complex and difficult to parse. The problem comes when you're having to make very subjective distinctions about ratings based on judgments that reasonable people might disagree on. Do you remember in 2012 when uh, Harry Reid suggested that Mitt Romney had paid no taxes? Yes, from the floor right? of the Senate. Right. And yes. the problem with that statement was we simply had no way to evaluate it. It was, an, it was an unsubstantiated assertion. It couldn't be evaluated as being true or false on the PolitiFact rating scale, but it was wildly irresponsible. I'll give you another one. I'm going to build a wall and the Mexicans are going to pay for it. Is that true? I don't know. It's a future intention. Right. You have to be cautious in, in, in putting labels like true or false on things. I worry sometimes that those get in the way of people accepting the validity of the fact checkers conclusions. We can have a, a epistemological debate about what truth is, which is in some ways what the 2016 campaign has bizarrely turned into. But ultimately, the facts in the article about the, uh, say, the likelihood of, of Mexico paying to build a wall are much more important than the rating that's at the top. Right? And right. to the extent that the rating gets in the way of people accepting the validity of the evidence the fact checkers have put together, that worries me. Do you see evidence, John Dickerson has suggested this, that uh, at times Donald Trump has said things he knows are going to get fact checked and he knows he's not going to come out well, but he knows his people will ignore the fact check and just respond to the fact that it's getting a lot of attention. It's, there's a longstanding strategy to create factual disputes to get more coverage of something you think is important, right? So an, yeah. an, an old version of this tactic is when you're creating a TV ad, you put in some sort of questionable claim that will spur a controversy that will generate so-called free media coverage of your ad. In the process, TV news will repeat your ad multiple times. Your side will be with you anyway. And even the people who aren't necessarily with you will have heard your message a lot more. I do think Trump takes advantage of that. And he's at least not concerned about the effect it would have. He probably should be, right? He has to be expanding his support if he's going to win the election, but he's at least more indifferent to it than we've previously seen. And again, even if he loses, 
it probably won't be by, by very much. Right? In a polarized system, we're not going to see 1984 or 1964, some of these historic presidential landslides. By the way, as a journalist, I want politicians to tell the truth. But as a voter, I have to say, I'm not very driven by facts or who I think uh, is telling the truth more often. You know, an exception is when someone is lying most of the time. But for instance, my three big issues, let's say the last election, were I believe that it's demonstrably true that stimulus is better than austerity. I believe that, however you define it, diplomacy is better than war. And I believe that an expansion of gay rights is better than uh, suppression. You know, those aren't fact-based arguments in which politicians aligned with them were mostly the politicians I'd vote for. And I also think most people are more like me. Absolutely. Political science agrees with you 100%. Our political commitments are not the rational product of reasoning from facts, much as we'd like to believe that about ourselves. That's just true. And so one of the concerns that I have about how fact-checking is interpreted is that the people reading fact-checks have already made up their mind. They're reading it. They're reading fact-checks like they like a fan reads a sports page to see if their team is winning or losing. Yeah. To get a grade, to get upset about the other guy because they're information junkies. I do this on this show, too. I find it interesting. It's ent- it's our highbrow version of entertainment. But, you know, I really don't think that I'm serving the uh, uh, electorate or setting elections straight or like holding politicians to account. I think it's exactly what you said, that people already in the know are reading it like the sports page and, you know, figuring it out, figuring out why that pass play worked or why that blitz didn't. No, I agree. I mean, the uh, the undecided voters are a very small group of people. And the reason for the most part they're undecided is they're not engaged with politics. They're certainly not reading fact-checking websites very often. So when you think about the benefits of fact-checking, I think you have to emphasize preventing myths from infecting policy debates like the death panel myth did to the the healthcare yeah. reform debate and in terms of holding elites accountable for making these claims in the first place we know they are sensitive to negative coverage you know trump is a possible exception to that fact you know preventing these claims from getting out there in the first place or at least trying to help deter them may be more important than helping people reach some different opinion, right? Because even if you are fully convinced of that fact that you've now learned, you may ultimately say, well, my position on gay rights or the stimulus is the same as it was before, right? I have lots of reasons for holding that position. This is one of them. Now I know it's wrong, but I have lots of others. You know, I haven't changed my mind. Brandon Nyhan is a professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College, and I rate him mostly true. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks a lot. If you listen to Slate podcasts, you've heard about Slate Plus, which helps Slate and gives members pre-sales and discounts on Slate events. But so far, the gist, this podcast, has not been able to produce extra content. Well, maybe you've heard, we have two producers now, so I want to get all Slate Plusy. I have a couple of big plans for what we want to do, and I think we'll be debuting our first feature for Slate Plus members this Friday, and now this, in Slate's 20th anniversary year, Slate Plus is 30% off. So, this discount, which means it's $35 a year, plus for the first time ever, just content on Slate Plus, and, you know, discounts on that election show that we're doing, and more Slate stuff to read in a Slate Academy. I won't list it all here, but now's the time, if you've been on the fence, or wondering if you should do it, 
to become a member of Slate Plus for just $35 a year. And if all goes well, this Friday will be the first just extra for Slate Plus subscribers. And now the spiel. Donald Trump is that reality show candidate who lives in his own reality. But I found one way that his reality has affected or rather infected all of ours. Trump is inward looking. He's ignorant. He's unschooled on much going on in the world. But his worldview is sucking up so much of the attention that it's threatening to block the rest of the world from our view. Take just this program, The Gist. Over the last few months, there have been so many international events that fascinate me, often dishearten me, and I would love to talk about them. Sometimes I'd come into work with every intention to talk about them. But then Trump would do something crazy and you'd have to cover it. I'm not even talking about full gist team coverage about the time he cited his business acumen and fun stuff like that. I'm talking about the important things where attention must be paid. The other day, I briefly mentioned the Colombian peace accord that fell by the wayside, and listeners thank me for doing so, and I want to do more of that, but Trump makes it hard. So right now in this space, what I want to do is touch upon what's going on in Syria, if only to say that it bears paying attention to, even if there's little anyone could do about it. So on September 9th, the Russians, along with U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, announced a ceasefire which would go into effect in three days' time. There was the usual diplomatic fanfare and optimism. We believe that the plan, uh, as it is set forth, if implemented, if followed, has the ability uh, to provide a turning point, a moment of change. But whatever hope there was was almost immediately undercut by a U.S. bombing run which killed 60 or so Syrian soldiers. This, of course, barely made the news in the U.S., so we turned to a September 17th report on the BBC to understand why. It's interesting. I've been glued to the U.S. um, networks all day, and not a single mention has been made so far of what is happening in Syria today. I'm sure that'll change. They are obsessed solely with the U.S. election. But I would imagine that as we go into this news cycle, and I think this statement may change all of that, Hillary Clinton has argued to carry on President Obama's work, but Donald Trump has long advocated working closely with the Russians, um, and he has praised uh, Putin in the past. So it will be interesting to see over the next 24 hours how the candidates react. Laura Bicker reporting, the candidates reacted with concern, empathy, and nuance. Yeah, right. Donald Trump said it was a consequence of U.S. weakness, and he used the phrase, the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I could not find if Hillary Clinton talked about it at all. But U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, reacted to her Russian counterparts who were hopping mad. If we determined that we did indeed strike Syrian military personnel, that was not our intention. And... We, of course, regret the loss of life. Okay, well, there's a diplomat smoothing things over. This said... Oh, here we go. Even by Russia's standards, tonight's stunt, a stunt replete with moralism and grandstanding, is uniquely cynical and hypocritical. Well, it might have been unique, but it wasn't the nadir. Because two days later, the Russians attacked what's been described as a clearly marked U.N. convoy trying to deliver aid to refugees 
U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry did not hold his fire. Under those circumstances, when you've signed up to a ceasefire and you don't adhere to it, what kind of credibility do you have with any of your people? The Russians dug in as the Syrians were once more forced to dig graves. And here is how the BBC described the state of affairs then. The Syrian military have said the ceasefire is over. The rebel side has said it's over. The Russians have more or less agreed it's over. It's only the Americans and their allies, led by John Kerry, who are trying to keep a flicker of hope alive. No, it was dead. Like half a million have been claimed by the Syrian war. The ceasefire lasted a week. Here's the latest. Charges, denials, further war crimes. Russia and the U.S. have broken off talks. And even the agreement on the United States and Russia's part to dispose of plutonium, which could make nuclear weapons, has been suspended. This agreement goes to the year 2000. Back in 2000, there wasn't even consensus on what the Putin administration would be like. Would he be Western looking? Would he be a reformer? Would he keep his shirt on when he rode horses? What? This is bad. Syria is a total mess. Whose fault is it? Well, the evildoers are the repressive Assad regime, the brutal ISIS rebels, the tinderbox of the Arab Spring, and the amoral opportunism of the Russians. But the Americans have done not much more than cover their eyes. It's easy to see why you can accuse the administration of fiddling while Aleppo burns. But not even all the administration. John Kerry, in audio captured by the New York Times, told a group of Syrian civilians that he and a few others had argued for military action. I think you're looking at three people, four people in the administration who have all argued for your support. And I've lost the argument. And Hillary Clinton is said to have been on the same page as Kerry, arguing at least for some no-fly zones. Now, criticizing Obama for his handling of Syria is like criticizing for a football coach who decides to go for a run play on fourth down when he could have gone for a pass. When the run doesn't work, it sure looks like the pass option was attractive. But you can't prove that would have worked. And Obama argues something like that pass could have had worse consequences, an interception or something. But I do know plenty of fair-minded people, international experts, even Democrats who worked in Democratic administrations on foreign affairs. They think that Obama has handled Syria poorly. They fault him for overlearning the lessons of Iraq and maybe Libya and not taking action when circumstances demanded he do so. There is no telling when this war will end or how many more will die. And this is one of those things that the next president will probably be unable to affect because of the actions of the current one. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube grew up in a small Canadian mining town before joining the band Bahamian Seabreeze. Just producer Mary Wilson worked in an iron foundry before writing her smash hit, Kiss of the Gossamer Dove. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast's Clean Septic Tanks. All the while, he was getting ready to launch his award-winning fragrance, Compulsion by Steve. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, took double shifts at the Swine Slaughterhouse while busily writing what would become his beloved children's book, A Hug for Harry Hogg. The gist we went to the best, most sensitive Montessori schools, and each night we laid down on a feather-top bed 
with crisp Egyptian cotton sheets. It all informed our experience as the frontman for the death metal band Schweinschlachten. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.